SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, the Camaragal people of the Gringai Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to. From the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yuridamarang, hello, I'm your host Luana Grant and welcome to NITV Radio for this Friday the 7th of July. Throughout this week on NITV Radio, we have continued to share interviews paying tribute to this year's theme for our elders as NADOC Week wraps up this weekend. Coming up on the program today, a conversation with Shauna Bostock about her new book, Reaching Through Time, revealing the devastating impact of colonisation on Aboriginal families. It also shows how family research can bring a deeper understanding and healing of the wounds in our history. And also coming up on today's show, we share a story about Monash University's 27th Indigenous Nationals, an annual event bringing together student athletes from universities across Australia to compete in a variety of sports. And NITV Radio caught up with two-time Grammy award-winning musician Lucky Oceans, who has produced the album Songs for Freedom, which has been selected by ABC Country's Album of the Week to coincide with NADOC Week. All of these stories and more coming to you after the latest news. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. Remote Arnhem Land Community urges NT government to take over a clinic following the death of a toddler. Traditional owners in Darwin lodge emergency application to halt the bulldozing of a culturally significant site. And the United Nations tells Israel that escalation is not the answer after assault on the West Bank. The remote Arnhem Land community of Nuka has called on the Northern Territory government to take over the running of a local health clinic following the death of a toddler. The family of the three-year-old say they asked the Sunrise Health Service Clinic for help numerous times in the days leading up to his death. The clinic responded, saying it's always looking to improve health outcomes for patients, while the Territory and Federal Government say they're in talks with the health provider. Bobby Nungam Ajbar, chair of the Yugal Mangi Development Aboriginal Corporation, agrees with the child's uncle, saying the territory government needs to take over the clinic. We're still having the same same issue. Uh, it's lack of services in, within our community. The impact is 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 massive, and um, there's nothing worse than losing a three-year-old boy. Traditional owners in Darwin have made an emergency application to Federal Environment Minister Tanya Plibersek, urging her to halt bulldozers at a culturally significant site. 
Lee Point is significant to the Dungalaba community, but the land is due to be cleared for a Defence Housing Australia project. Environmental Justice Australia lodged the application for an emergency stop to the land clearing on behalf of the Dungalaba people. The application asked Ms Plibersek to complete due diligence to determine whether Aboriginal cultural heritage is present and whether it will be damaged by the development. Senior New South Wales police officials will continue to be questioned today over inadequate record-keeping, lost exhibits and investigative failures into unsolved deaths across the state. Supreme Court Justice John Sackar is due to resume questioning of senior homicide squad detectives after an inquiry into unsolved suspected gay hate crimes revealed systematic issues within the force. Homicide Squad Chief Detective Superintendent Daniel Doherty was earlier forced to admit that the systematic poor management of files for unsolved murder cases remains an ongoing issue within police practices. Mr Doherty said he was aware of ongoing issues with tracking down exhibits and records and conceded the long-standing issue was notorious in the force. The federal government has again rejected the opposition's demands to consider establishing a nuclear power network as ageing coal-fired power stations are shut down. Opposition leader Peter Dutton is due to make a speech today and will reportedly say the government is mesmerised by alternative energy sources such as power panels when it should consider building small nuclear reactors. Mr Dutton will say nuclear energy is more cost-effective than the federal government has showed it to be, saying if nuclear power is so prohibitively expensive, why are more than 50 countries investing in it, including those with smaller economies than Australia? Asked if the government supported nuclear power solutions, Labor frontbencher Jason Clare says no. The United Nations Secretary-General has told Israel's government he understands their security concerns but says escalation is not the answer after the military action in Jenin. An Israeli military assault on a refugee camp in the West Bank earlier this week killed at least 12 Palestinians and one Israeli soldier in Israel's biggest campaign in the West Bank in 20 years. The army claims to have inflicted heavy damage on Palestinian militant groups based out of the refugee camp in in an operation which included the deployment of hundreds of ground troops as well as the first airstrikes on the region in two decades. UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres says the Israeli military action which damaged hospitals and civilian infrastructure was a significant escalation. Israel's airstrikes and ground operations in a crowded refugee camp were the worst violence in the West Bank in many years, with a significant impact on civilians, including more than 100 injured and thousands forced to flee. Schools and hospitals were damaged, water and electricity networks were disrupted, and people in need were prevented from accessing essential care and relief. At least five people have been killed and 34 people injured in the western Ukrainian city of Lviv, in which the mayor calls the biggest attack on the city's civilian infrastructure since the war began. Lviv is far from the front lines and many people fled there to escape fighting and airstrikes in other parts of the country. It comes as tensions escalate around the nuclear power plant, with Ukraine's health ministry warning people to be ready to evacuate. The International Atomic Energy Agency says its experts have concluded regular walks across the site, so far without observing any visible indications of mines or explosives.
Senior Research Associate at the Harvard Kennedy School, Mariana Bujran, says an explosion on the roof would not by itself compromise safety. There would need to be an explosives on the inside. One thing we can know for sure that if the plant is sabotaged from the inside and that causes the radioactive release, there really is no problem of attribution because it, it needs people on the inside to do that. Um, and that those could only be uh, the Russian military. Police in the United Kingdom say an eight-year-old girl has died and several other children and adults were injured after a car hit a South London primary school. The children have been holding an end-of-term tea party with parents and teachers in the garden of study prep school in Wimbledon, less than two kilometres from the ongoing tennis tournament. Authorities had said earlier that a total of seven children and two adults had been injured in the collision. Senior police officer Claire Kelland says the driver of the vehicle, a woman in her 40s, has been arrested for causing death by dangerous driving and remains in police custody. And in AFL, Collingwood's relentless attack is a major focus for Western Bulldogs coach Luke Beveridge ahead of their match tonight in Melbourne. While their leading goal kicker Brodie Mierkek will miss the clash because of hamstring tightness, Beveridge says the Magpies are more than the sum of their parts when they're on the offensive. While the Bulldogs beat the Magpies the last two times they've met, Beveridge says the opposition's offensive lines are going to give the Bulldogs headaches. And now a look at today's weather. Broome, sunny 28. Perth, showers 19. Adelaide, showers increasing 16. Melbourne, a shower or two 15. Hobart, partly cloudy 14. Aubrey-Wodonga, cloudy 11. Canberra, a shower or two 11. Wollongong, mostly sunny 17. Sydney, sunny 18. Newcastle, mostly sunny 19. Brisbane, sunny 22. Townsville, mostly sunny 26. Cairns, cloudy 29. Alice Springs, sunny 18. Darwin, sunny 34. And the Torres Strait Islands, mostly cloudy 30. And that is NITV Radio News. TV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. Welcome back to NITV Radio. I'm your host, Luana Grant, and that was a little bit of country by Fitzroy Express. Still to come on the program, we share a story from Monash University's 27th Indigenous Nationals, an annual event bringing together student athletes from across from universities across Australia to compete in a variety of sports. And NITV Radio caught up with two-time Grammy Award-winning musician Lucky Oceans, who has produced the album Songs for Freedom, which has been selected by ABC Country's Album of the Week to coincide with NADOC. But first, Shauna Bostock's new book, Reaching Through Time, reveals the devastating impact of colonisation on Aboriginal families and how this ripples through to the present. It also shows how family research can bring a deeper understanding and healing of the wounds in our history. NITV Bertrand's Tungandami has more. Reaching Through Time is a new book by historian and author Shona Bostock, best summarized as the story of a Banjalang woman's journey to uncover her family history 
and is published in the context of NIDOC Week 2023. And I'm glad to say Shona Bostock has just joined us on NITV Radio to talk about uh, her groundbreaking book. Shona, first of all, thanks for joining us on NITV Radio. Oh, thank you for having me. Yes, much appreciated. Now, this book, uh, I'm glad to say I've had a review copy and uh, started reading it. It's the fruit of uh, tireless and meticulous work lasting over a decade, and it actually started the... Unexpectedly, one night when uh, your uncle called you and said, well, uh, you're related to a slave trader. Yes, that was a shocking night. I got a late night call from my uncle Jerry in um, Sydney. I live in Brisbane. And he rang up and he said, you won't believe what I've just found out, that the um, ancestor who we knew we all descended from, Augustus John Bostock, that's where our Aboriginal family got the Bostock name from, he was the grandson of two generations of slave traders. So um, his great-grandfather and his grandfather were slave traders. They were both called Robert Bostock. And Robert Jr. got um, um, arrested by the British government. And he is one of only two people to be transported to the colony in Australia for slave trading. Yeah, so that was a shock. Yeah, the, the shock, yeah, discovering that, and then uh, leading up to uh, his story once he arrived in Australia, uh, history of uh, uh, marriages between Aboriginal women and uh, Europeans. Uh, it was uh, quite, a, I would say, uh, not an easy situation at the time uh, during colonization. No, no, it wasn't. It was very uncommon, um, um, but... Uh, uh, Augustus John Bostock, the grandson of the slave trader, ended up being educated with all that money that they, the wealth that they had. Um, his family sent him to England to be educated, and then came, he came back to Australia. And there's many lost years of his travels that I couldn't find any information on. And he ended up on Bunjilung country, and he married my great great grandmother, who was a traditional Aboriginal woman from Wollumbin Mount Warning. And that was then, um, uh, one my yeah? Yes, one my yes. I've heard an uh, Aboriginal woman say that it was one my, you know, like said really fast and it was pronounced differently. And there's four different spellings of her name in the historic record. But um, she did uh, uh, appear on his, on Augustus John Bostock's death certificate as his wife and it said one my, otherwise Clara Wollumbin. So she claimed the Wollumbin name. Now Wollumbin is um, is the name of Mount Warning, the Aboriginal name of Mount Warning. So she was a traditional Wollumbin woman. And from there on, uh, because John Bostock first lived in New South Wales, then uh, went to Tasmania, came back to uh, your country, the country of your mum's um your mum's country, and that's where actually most of the book takes place. In my father's country, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so that's where Dad's um, Bostock family line originates from. Um, there were, uh, And there was another woman that Augustus John Bostock had a relationship with, and she was also Aboriginal, and um, her name was Jessie Anna and Wollumba, and I believe that's a transcription error for Wollumbin. So Augustus John Bostock was really interesting to me because he had children, relationships and children with two 
traditional Aboriginal women in um, northern New South Wales. Yeah, that's why the book takes place. And uh, one big discovery, one big thing that uh, comes out of this book is actually the very, very troubled relationship not only between Aboriginal people and, uh, you know, within the families, uh, the interracial marriages were really troublesome. But what you discovered is a, a more complex situation the relationship about uh, land ownership and the relationships with authorities and especially the Aboriginal Protection Board. Yes, that's right. The Aborigines Protection Board were an incredibly uh, um, uh, pivotal part of Australian Aborigines lives from the 1880s to, the, to as late as the 1960s. They were a government body set up to with the intention, the original intention of protecting Aborigines because um, very early uh, when the encroachment of settlers onto land cleared all the area and uh, forestry and uh, uh, Aboriginal people were moved on, there were, there were massacres and there were lots of um, reprisals and, and um, there was frontier violence, which Henry Reynolds, Professor Henry Reynolds has gone into in the 1980s with his books on the frontier. And um, and so some uh, missionaries uh, appealed to the New South Wales government to to help us have some funding to protect these Aborigines because they were a missionary got a bunch of Aborigines together who were starving because they were you know violently ripped off their land and and had no food source and were well they had they, they were doing the best they could but. Um, they were moved here, there and everywhere. And so the Aborigines Protection Board was set up to help Aborigines um, and to place them on Aborigines reserves. And reserve land was set up by the, uh, the British government before Federation as a humanitarian uh, venture to leave Aboriginal people in peace to hunt on their own land. So it was land set aside for Aborigines officially but that changed and morphed over time for to it becoming controlled by the aborigines protection board and the aborigines protection board the name was a uh it's a misnomer they they turned out to be yeah they turned out to be completely opposite of protection and they just uh, wanted to control um, aboriginal people's lives to a shocking extent and i reveal all that in the book with archives with um, aborigines protection board archives it's an interesting read and as a teacher who teaches at university um teaches teachers i've often been stunned that not just the students actually but people in general know nothing about the aborigines protection board and and it's it's time that that people understood the truth about aboriginal history yeah because uh, the board uh, the, as the name says aborigines protection board one would think that uh, with the word protection it's meant for the welfare and the well-being of aboriginal uh, people, but uh, it was quite the contrary. It was uh, there actually to uh, maintain a state of uh, uncertainty on uh, land occupation and land use. Even the rations were sometimes used as a means of uh, uh, pressure and oppression. Uh, quite the contrary of a welfare system. It was all born of inherent racism. I often say there were two enemies to Aboriginal people and that was um, racism itself and the government that perpetuated it. And boy, did the Aborigines Protection Board perpetuate it. Aboriginal people 
were taken off their land and marshaled and onto Aborigines reserves. They put managers in the place, sometimes corrupt managers. Um, um, these Aborigines reserves fed uh, Aboriginal people insufficient um, food rations of just a doll of flour and, and sugar and tea. And so Aborigines uh, were taken from their land and unable to be self-sustaining. And um, the Aborigines Protection Board saw themselves as the, as the, uh, you know, the saviors of Aboriginal people when, in fact, their funds and their organisation and their bureaucratic uh, interference was such that Aboriginal people were in dire straits and um, trying to make a living on the land. And then after the World War, the soldiers, settlers came, uh, the government decided to give soldier settlers land to reward them from their, for their overseas service, white soldier settlers. They started to reduce the sizes of, uh, of the reserve land and sell them off and lease them out and, you know, make money on the land to fund the institutions where they put children into institutions. They were on a campaign of child removal and so they built these institutions, Kudamundra Girls Home and Kinchella Boys Home, with the funds from, from diminishing Aboriginal land and completely taking away their rights to it. Yeah, so it was, it was a really shocking time in our history, and it certainly it has not been revealed. You keep asking people, "What do you know about the Aborigines Protection Board?" and then they say, "Oh, we were never taught about that at school." It's time the nation learned about this. Yeah, because uh, you mentioned uh, you also had ancestors going to war. We'll come to that a bit later. Because encroachment on Aboriginal land, stealing it during colonization, and even the meager land that was allocated to them was stolen after the war. And then uh, you also mentioned the pastoralists who used to bring about uh, any sorts of excuses just to get uh, people removed from the small reserves allocated to them. So all sorts of pressure and uncertainty and uh, just uh, discrimination and uh, cruelty. Cruelty, yes. And it was shocking discrimination. It was shocking oppression and it was shocking indifference to Aboriginal people's humanity. So so this, this government board would just pull the rug out from under Aborigines just when Aboriginal people might be able to build some, um, plant some crops and feed their own families. They'd clear the land, they'd work so hard to clear the land and um, and make themselves self-sufficient to feed their families. The government would say, oh, gee, they've done a really good job and take that land away to give it to white settlers or white soldier settlers. Even the, the local council in one place um, in Lismore, they saw Aboriginal people as being prosperous and it was taken away. There were years and years, generations of, Terrible uncertainty, terrible trauma, terrible um, fight and flight sort of uh, living for Aboriginal people in those days because the government was, was, was just taking children, deeming them neglected and taking them from their parents, sometimes with armed police. And, and children in schools and, and, and the students that I speak to are not educated on this part of our history and it's been hidden away and it needs to come out. We need to get to a healing stage. Yeah. And of all the trauma that Aboriginal people have suffered throughout history at the hands of the government, of the, the, the Australian government, the New South Wales government. It's, it's, it's extraordinary. 
And that was part one of Shauna Bostock's interview. We will air part two on Monday. And now time for a quick break, and when we return, we will share a story by NITV Radio's Sierra Schrader about Monash University's 27th Indigenous Nationals event, bringing together student-athletes from universities across Australia. And NITV Radio catches up with musician Lucky Oceans, who has produced the album Songs for Freedom. Stay tuned. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Welcome back. I'm your host, Luana Grant, and you're listening to NITV Radio. Now to a story by NITV Radio's Sierra Schrader about Monash University's 27th Indigenous Nationals, an annual event bringing together student-athletes from across universities across Australia to compete in a variety of sports. Sierra spoke with Ali, one of the captains of Monash's teams. In June, Monash University hosted the 27th Indigenous Nationals, an annual event that brings together Indigenous student-athletes from universities across Australia. This platform celebrates Indigenous sporting culture and recognises the heritage and histories of the participants. Today we have Ali, a Weba Weba woman and a captain of one of Monash's teams who participated in this year's Games. Thank you for joining us today on NITV Radio, Ali. Can you give a brief explanation of the Indigenous Nationals event and share your perspective on the purpose? The Indigenous Nationals was held last week. It's just like a mixed competition across four different sports, touch, rugby, basketball, netball and volleyball to gather all different mobs from all over Australia, getting together and playing some sport together. Well, who were some of the Participants, like, can you share some details about the teams, players, and universities involved? There was over thirty different teams, so different universities, all bringing in their Indigenous students to make up a sports team. Like, obviously, we had Monash University who held it this year at Monash Sport in Clayton. The champs of the year was University of Queensland. We had just all different teams from all across Australia, like from all different states. So, and you were part of the Monash University team? Yeah, we had two teams this year, which was pretty deadly. We had the Monash 1s and the Monash 2s. So not every state or university had two teams? No, I think we were the only ones. Well, what motivated your decision to participate in this year's Games and well, what significance did it hold for you on a personal level, especially being a captain this year? I definitely wanted to join because of my... Sister, she went to GUT, so Queensland University of Technology, and uh, all she raged about was about uni games when she was in uni. So I was very much like persuaded by her to join. I missed out last year and heard about how much fun it was, and also I've been missing playing a lot of sport because that's what I, all I did when I was growing up. So I very much wanted to get back into sport, and this really motivated me and even got me connections to join a football team, possibly getting back into volleyball as well. So I had a lot of different motivations to join and also just wanting to get connection with mob again, getting to hang around a bunch of black fellas, always fun. Um, Yeah, that's great. So why do you believe it's significant to organise and hold events like these games for Indigenous students? Well, it gives us a lot of connections, a lot of opportunities, even just making friends with mob 
but also like all of the different companies and sponsors and stuff that came in and that were wanting to set mob up with careers, internships, yeah, different opportunities to like learn different things. They had a lot of elders come in and just like talk to all of us. It was very much giving a lot of, yeah, opportunities for mob while being able to get out there and get fit, play some sports. So what were some of the challenges you and your team encountered during the competition? You know, especially as captain, did you have to maintain high spirits? We definitely had to maintain a lot of high spirits, especially waking up so early in the morning, getting everyone, like, if people would get home, would be getting home late at night and then having to wake up extra early in the morning. So especially the morning games weren't the best. For us, but yeah, keeping up the spirit as well as just like getting the team to be a team was definitely like the biggest challenge. At the end of it, we're all like, we're all family now. Instantly, like the day after nationals, I was hanging out with the team. Even like after we all went home, we were all like, oh, let's meet up because we just had the best time all together. And just even some of our team members like haven't played many sports or just had one sport in particular that they were good at and teaching them coaching them to play those sports and learn the rules even I had a challenge of learning because of it's the mixed games those rules but yeah there was definitely quite a bit of challenges but we all came out and learned so much from it. Well drawing on from your experience what advice would you offer to other First Nations students who plan to take part in future games or events? Do it. It is one of the best opportunities that I have been offered. I was so lucky to get in to the team and I'm so happy I did. It definitely it gives it like opens you up to so many opportunities as well as just making so many new friends and getting connection to culture through different mobs, learning about their culture as well. Honestly, like, yeah, don't miss out. Go, go for it. Well, Ali, thank you very much for taking your time to speak with us today on NITV Radio. Oh, good. Thank you for having me. Welcome back to NITV Radio. I'm your host, Luana Grant. Now to a story by NITV Radio's Bertrand Tungandami, who caught up with two-time Grammy Award-winning musician Lucky Oceans, who has produced the album Songs for Freedom, which has been selected by ABC Country's album of the week. Bertrand has more. I'm joined on NITV Radio by Lucky Oceans, a Grammy Award-winning artist and long-time ABC Radio National producer. Lucky Oceans is also the producer of the album Songs for Freedom. Lucky is joining us as uh, coinciding with Night of Quick 2023, the album Songs for Freedom has been selected by ABC Country as Album of the Week starting this Friday. It will also be Album of the Week on ABC Radio's Saturday Night Country and it has also featured in a prestigious publication this week. Lucky Ocean is joining us to explore these milestones for the album Songs for Freedom. Lucky, thanks for joining us on NITV Radio again. It's great to be here, Bertrand. Good to speak with you again. Yeah, last time we spoke, the album, the f- actually it was only after the release of the first uh, single, and now the album has travelled and uh, kicking goals. Yeah, it's it's been a great journey and a great privilege to be on it. And, you know, Songs for Freedom, we released the album in February, it's an album of 
songs, mostly from the town of Roebrin, the mostly Aboriginal town of Roebrin and the Pilbara. It's in aid of making people aware of the fact that there are so many Indigenous kids locked up in prison. So it's part of a political campaign, too. But the show has great music. Uh, Great musicians have come together and written songs. And when we go to a place, like we went to Tasmania, we spoke with the Palawa people. Uh, Patrick Chernside, a Nelema man from Robert, and I went there. And you speak with them, and you get to know them and play the show with them. They did an opening ceremony. It was a beautiful thing. And most recently, we went to Darwin, where we teamed up with Shelley Morris, newly an AO Shelley. She's not only a doctor, but she's an AO. And we wrote a song there. Most places we go, we try to write a song. And she got some of her friends down. And they were talking about the rates of imprisonment there are unbelievable. And then they let people out of prison and they drop them off under the water tower with nothing. And then people get fined $160 for sleeping rough. No. Yeah. You know, there's all these people in Darwin. They might be there for medical treatment. They got, you know, no place to stay. So they get fined and put back in jail. So there's definitely a, a lot of issues to be dealt with there. But it was an interesting song that we came up with. Shelley said, well, what is freedom? And she said, well, freedom is having the time to tell my story, having the time to sit and talk with a person. You know, and the key line there is having the time, you know, not just scheduling a 45 minute meeting with the minister. It's like this, this is a long process figuring out how to fix all the things that have have gone wrong. And uh, this uh, illustrates uh, how some people find themselves entangled uh, in uh, the legal system through no fault of of their own, just for minor issues, even a non-issue like uh, sleeping rough. Yeah, and, and it destroys lives. It costs the government a lot of money. So we're better off, you know, with programs for people or have have people supported on their own land and let them figure out uh, what to do. Yeah. And uh, making uh, the uh, album of the week uh, on ABC, one uh, particular song lifted from the album, Little Town Big Heart, is uh, the one being most celebrated. Can you tell us a word or two about uh, this uh, single in particular? It's a great song about Robert. Fred Ryan wrote that. He's he's a Yamachi man. He's been living in Karatha, which is very close to Robert for, for decades. It says it, you know, people here, they welcome you in, you know, on the banks of the Harding River. This town is so much bigger than what you see when you pass by. Like, there's, there's almost no shops there. It's, you know, there's a lot of people living there. The commerce has been bled out of it by Karatha, which is the nearby new mining town. So it's a great song that describes the town of Rover and what 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 a welcoming place it is what a cultural place it is and and he has a little sly pun in there because he says little town big heart and big heart is the name of the organization 
that has been based in Roburn for over 10 years working with the community there. Yeah, the organization has produced some hundreds of songs and uh, participated in many community events and initiatives. So many, I can't uh, really enumerate all of them. But, but, but going back to Songs of Freedom album, Continuing to Kill Goals, there's also a feature article in the new issue of Capital News. The album has been featured in Capital News. It's the CD of the week on ABC Country. And, and on ABC Saturday Night Country. So, of course, the music, it, it has a lot of country music in it. Pilbara music is a lot that way. It's great to be recognized, you know, in the country world. And a lot of people think that country music is very conservative music. But if you go back to uh, Woody Guthrie, he was, he was writing songs for the people in a country music style. And a lot of Aboriginal country music is our protest songs. And that was part of the conversation with Lucky Oceans. The full interview is published on our website at sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. Have you heard some of the great podcasts that SBS creates, including ours? You can find them on the SBS Audio app and website. Each year, we also invite podcast ideas from the public to commission new podcasts from diverse Australian voices. Do you have a story to tell? If you have an idea for a podcast series that would feel at home on SBS, we want to hear from you. Submit your pitch via our website until July 31. For more information, please visit sbs.com.au slash podcast page. And that's all we have time for on today's program. I hope you've enjoyed our stories this NAIDOC week celebrating our elders. Just a reminder to tune into NITV and SBS simulcast of Going Places with Ernie Dingo Series 5, premiering on Saturday evening at 7.30pm, and Arnie Rhoda Roberts in Orgul Oration on Sunday evening at 730 you can listen back to the show anytime online or catch any of our stories on our website at sbs.com.au. You can also find us on Facebook. NITV Radio will be back on Monday, Wednesday and Friday next week, 1 till 2pm, with more stories from right across the country. I'm your host, Luana Grant-Mundungor. Thank you for listening. <laughs> 